From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Diverse workforces outperform other companies every time. So there's a business imperative to diversity because diversity of ideas and experiences will always lead to better decisions, better products, better services. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. What can Shakespeare teach a newly minted sales rep? Well, that's something Christian Smith, CRO of Splunk, has not only contemplated, but also put into practice. So how did a student of the Bard make his way into sales? That's the question we'll answer today. What I love about Christian's story is that it kicks off at one of the most notorious times in tech, the dot-com implosion of 2001. Christian took some hits, but he emerged as a stronger leader. Today, he'll share his thoughts on resilience, on how sales leaders can continue to drive impact even after their company has been swallowed up by a juggernaut like Oracle. And he'll talk about his four pillars for sales excellence. Let's jump into the conversation. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justin. Great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to get into your background, your career. But first of all, I had to ask you about a very interesting title that your mother received. She was known as the entire city's mom. Where did that come from? And more importantly, what did it feel like to share your mom with the entire city? Yeah, it's a, I, I didn't bequeath that title to her, by the way. It was granted by others. It's a funny story. I grew up in Bellevue, Washington. It's outside of Seattle, Washington. And yes, typical suburban um, middle-class kind of community. And my parents uh, had nine children, so I'm eight of nine, big family. And they were very uh, focused on community. And one of the things that they did uh, is they became more involved in the community is they started a halfway house. And that halfway house uh, ended up becoming one of the biggest social services in the state of Washington. But in the early days, it was an open door policy for uh, anybody in the community to come, uh, have a warm meal, uh, get a bed if they needed it sometimes my bed, so I would have to move onto the floor. And uh, because of that, she got known as just the mom for the entire city. Everybody was welcome. Many people uh, came by on a regular basis just to pop in, grab a meal, and sometimes to uh, to get a bed to sleep in just because of their circumstances. So it was a pretty unique experience, and I'm proud of my mom and my dad both for uh, doing some great things for the community. So what was that like as a kid to share your home? Was that something that you enjoyed or was it was it a little bit frustrating? Well, you know, uh, it's not something I'd recommend for everybody because it comes with frustration and uh, confusion. As a young kid, it was kind of strange to see all these different people coming in and out of the house on a regular basis. And uh, some of them were war, war veterans. This is you know, post-Vietnam War. Uh, which had great stories, and they were just really interesting folks. Other folks were coming out of the system, so out of uh, incarceration um, or out of drug treatment programs, and they brought their own little kind of craziness along for the ride. But my folks were great about helping us kids understand the importance of helping others, of uh, being community-oriented. We never had locks on our doors. I, I didn't have a key to my house growing up. It was very strange. Um, but, you know, as a young kid, it also created some uh, differences in how you see the world, because our world was a much more um, myriad of characters than my peer groups and my friends. I think it taught me a lot about uh, acceptance and caring and, and passion, but it, it also meant our family wasn't like other families. So in some ways that uh, that was a little confusing as a young lad. Now, as you think about as a as a sales leader, your perspective on diversity, how did that experience shape your mindset today? Yeah, you know, um, I didn't realize that diversity was something I needed to focus on until later in my middle part of my career. I think because of my upbringing, because we just were raised with a very diverse uh, set of people in our home despite the fact that we were in a kind of uh, 
average suburban environment. And the way that I was raised was just see all people as people. So later in my career, I realized, wow, you know, there's actually people from all sorts of underrepresented groups who actually have a much harder path in their careers. And when I started to understand that, it helped me go back to my upbringing and say, well, gosh, I care about these people. Uh, they're people I've uh, had in my life forever, and I need to figure out how do I uh, help them in this community, which is the work community. So you bring a unique perspective, one that was instilled in you from a very young age. Many may not come from that kind of a background. As a leader, can you share anything that you're doing to help people appreciate the importance of diversity and make diversity a reality in the workplace every day? Yeah, Justin, it's um, it's a challenging topic, but an important one, I think, and more so uh, now than ever, as we've gotten a lot of really good focus on the challenges of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So part, it starts with, um, I think, being very transparent and humble about the importance of diversity as a leader. And so I share with my team my own background. I share with them my family. Uh, I have a very diverse family. My wife's Mexican. My oldest daughter is gay. And the personal importance it has to me as a leader to drive a, an equitable and a diverse work environment. Then I talk about the business and the data behind it and that diverse workforces outperform other companies every time. So there's a business imperative to diversity because diversity of ideas and experiences will always lead to better decisions, better products, better services. And then uh, I think it's important to focus on uh, intrinsic inherited bias. We all have biases, it's just a fact. And where your biases are and how they are uh, expressed is different you know, person to person, but it takes work to understand that we all have biases and to then put uh, tactics and strategies against how do you improve on your biases? How do you check them? How do you uh, manage through them so that you can get that diverse workforce, which is going to lead to better business outcomes? You know, tactically, uh, one of the things that we've done that actually helps, for example, is we require all open positions that we have at least one diverse candidate in every position that we interview for. Uh, which is a litmus test to make sure that we're driving a diverse candidate pool into our business. And those types of tactics um, help you to develop uh, different strategies for building a diverse talent pool, including how we've outreached into the community to build um, uh, more internships uh, into diverse communities that build a talent pool we can tap into for those candidacies. So that's sort of the way that, that I think about it and actually the way that I've been doing it here at Splunk. I think there's so much power in experiencing the power of diversity. When I was younger, I lived in Chile for a couple of years. I was in an interesting position in that for those two years, I was the minority, the underrepresented group. And to this day, I remember a couple of key individuals. One, Edgardo Ghibelline, who was Chilean, kind of took me under his wing. I didn't speak the language. I didn't understand the culture. And I was in a, a very vulnerable position and just benefiting from the friendship that he exhibited changed my perspective and gave me more empathy towards someone, anyone that's coming into a group and may not feel like they're, they're part of the larger group. And that is fuel that, that helps me to appreciate and, and, and pursue those, those DEI goals. I think there's nothing more impactful than your you know, personal experiences and having uh, worked with and worked under someone who uh, can help you understand uh, the, the importance of that and help you check your own biases and show you the path, show you yeah. the pattern to adapt. All right. So you've got this thing going on at home where lots of visitors coming in and out. Not sure if you're going to have a bed to sleep in at night, but having the opportunity to share and share alike. Meanwhile, you've got this whole venture going, this business venture going at school. You're a hustler. Tell us a little bit about what you were like as a kid when it came time to make some money. <laughs> I was very goal-oriented, very driven. So when uh, I was growing up in that crazy environment, we had this uh, sort of tradition of hand-me-downs, which I think a lot of people had in those days. And, and the hand-me-down I had was my bike. So uh, I got my sister's beat-up uh, blue bike. And I had to ride that to school because uh, the bus didn't always uh, work for me. So I'd ride this bike to, to school. And I got to tell you, I was a little embarrassed by it. 
uh, it was it was a little downtrodden. And I saw this Schwinn chopper bike. It was just gorgeous. It had this flecked gold seat. It had what was called a sissy bar, which was this big backrest. It had a uh, chopper front with a small uh, spoke wheel in the front. It was a thing of beauty. And uh, I wanted that. And the challenge I had is I realized, okay, that's that's the goal. That's what I want is that, that bike. But to get there, I needed money. And I didn't have any money. And this big family of all these older brothers and sisters had taken all the jobs in the neighborhood. They had the newspapers and the dog walking and the car washing and the babysitting. And I was left with nothing. So I realized I had to come up with a way to make money. And I decided, you know, the way to do that was to start my own business. I thought, what could I sell? And where could I sell it? Well, I go to school every day, so I, I can sell something at school. What do kids at school want? Well, what would I want? I like candy. I'm always a big fan of candy. So I reckon if I could sell candy at school, I could make some money because people would want it and they can't get it at school. So I came up with this idea of, of selling shares because my stepdad was a stockbroker at the time, selling shares to raise capital. And I told people, if you, you give me 20 cents, I'll give you 30 cents at the end of the day. Dividend stock. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I raised my capital and I drove my uh, sister's hand-me-down beat-up bike to the store before school, bought my supply of candy, came to school and uh, sold it at recess. And it went like uh, like flapjacks to lumberjacks. It was crazy. Like the kids were just going nuts. And uh, I did well. So uh, for several weeks, I was the candy man, not the scary kind, but the happy kind. And uh Everything was going great. And I was building the money that I needed towards my bike until one day, Principal Murphy called me into his office. And uh, he gave me that look of uh, consternation because I was a pretty good student. He's like, Smith, what are you doing? You can't sell candy to the kids. The parents are really upset. It's not good for them. Knock it off. No more candy sales. So I was a little disappointed. And I hadn't raised enough money for my bike yet. So I realized I got to do something else. Now, the principal did say, don't sell candy. But he didn't say I couldn't sell something else. So I pivoted and I started selling matchbox cars, if you remember those toys from the 70s. And uh, they worked out pretty well as well. My clientele shifted a little bit, uh, more boys than uh, boys and girls. But they were equally excited to have something to spend their uh, lunch money on. And I, I got to the cash I needed and I ended up with the bike. Uh, so that's my little story of my entrepreneurial spirit and drive and frankly, the power of goal setting uh, to drive your behavior. Man, well, you're speaking my language, the matchbox cars, the Schwinn chopper, the hand-me-downs were big time. I remember, I don't know if you had a pair of these, but we always had the tough skins. Oh, yeah. Kind of pant with like, like industrial strength knees that you could not wear a hole in. Do you, do you remember, and this is a side story, do you remember tough skins actually had a warranty? If you wore <laughs> through the knee, you would get a new pair of tough skins. And I tell you, I remember days where I would sit in my front uh, patio with the concrete with my knees, rubbing them into the ground to tear a hole in these pants so I could get a fresh pair of tough skins. That's impressive. All right, well, uh, we'll uh, a, a pair of tough skins will be in the mail, Christian. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to find some that are somewhat fashionable. But uh, you're taking me on a stroll down memory lane. All right. so. You're making money hand over fist selling matchbox cars, but eventually the calling comes, you go to college. You went to the to UW, and I gotta I always gotta call out the English, the folks that focus on English. I too am an, am an English major. So we gotta give some props for that. Why English? Why'd you study English? What else did you study and how has that impacted you in your career of sales? Yeah, it's funny, you know. Um, like I think a lot of people in this industry, I thought I would go into law. Because uh, I was, you know, pretty sharp kid and and could talk and could read and could write pretty well. And uh, I always wanted uh, to do something I thought that would make good money. I thought lawyers made good money. But when I got to the UW, in my experience, um, I found this really strong pull towards the English language and started in Shakespearean uh, literature and doing a lot of work there. And I was really good at it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fascinating. But I also had this pragmatic side, which is, well, you know, can I get a job in this or not? So I decided to minor in English uh, and Shakespearean literature, and I got my major in advertising, uh, which the idea I could spin this love of language into maybe a job, maybe into a way to connect the emotion that you can extract through uh, words 
uh, into persuasion and connecting with the emotions of buyers. And so those are the combination things that I did at UW that um, I think uh, miraculously ended up with some value in the career and the chosen career of sales that I ended up in. So you, you finished UW. How did you eventually land in sales, though? Well, I tell you, um, there's nothing like networking in the world. There's two steps to my sales career. Step one, I had to pay for college myself. So that scrappiness I learned as a little kid turned out to be important. So I worked my way through high school. That's a lot of matchbox cars. A lot of matchbox cars. Turned on to other things, you know, uh, got proper jobs, you know, uh, movie theater jobs and whatnot during high school to save up. Uh, got some scholarships uh, out of uh, grades and, and needs. And then uh, I figured out that I could become a rush chairman of my fraternity and get room and board. So I did a couple of things like that to just find my way. Well, as rush chairman, I met all the other rush chairmen for the fraternities at UW. And they had this one thing that was very common. A lot of them uh, worked at night selling this paper called the Fishing and Hunting News. And they said, you know, this is a great job for college because it's night. It's 4.30 to 9.30 at night. It's all commission-based. You can do really well if you're good. Um, and you know you can kind of make it fit with your class schedule. And I thought, well, what a great idea! I could supplement my uh, income, get some spending money in addition to room and board, and uh, I gave it a shot. Uh, got the reference, went in there, and uh, it was an awesome experience. I worked there for three years. I made really good money for college. I was really good at it. Great on the phones. Had a lot of fun. Created a persona, Bobby Jones from Fishing Honey News. Uh, to talk about slinging this paper to people, that was uh, quite something. It was a real rag, to be honest with you. But fun because people that are sportsmen, they like that kind of stuff. So I went back to all my... Right, all right. So hold on. You had an alter ego. You I had, had an alter, alter ego, ego here. Bob, Bobby Jones. What's the mindset behind Bobby Jones? Where'd that come from? To sell fishing hunting news, you have to be a sportsman. Now, I've done some fishing and some hunting, but... That's not the thing that I spend my weekends doing, right? And the folks that buy this paper, they live and breathe it. So Bobby had to be that kind of a person. Bobby really had to be the person that you want to take on a fishing trip or a hunting fish. He understood all about the walleye in the Mid Lakes. He understood about the different types of deer, the whitetail and the blacktail. And by goodness, uh, he was just as thrilled as you were when you got your picture in the paper with that uh, special trophy uh, fish or game. That's who Bobby Jones was. <laughs> That's who I created. So were, were you like studying on the side, like building out this character so you could maintain the ruse on the phone? I was a thespian in high school, so I think it was my second nature. Just you know, develop a character, live the character, and uh, study the character. Yeah, it, it was fascinating. Now, by the way, all the other folks I worked with, they did the same thing. So we had this, you know, 25 people in a call center, all with these personas. And it was pretty fun to just try to keep track of them all and, and how their personas evolve through time. Just as a little sidebar, going back to Shakespeare, uh, there's an amazing book by a guy named Harold Bloom. Uh, it's called The Invention of the Human. And he studies Shakespeare. And what he posits is that no other author in history has had the range of personalities and the characters developed by Shakespeare. Um, he says Dickens is number two, but Shakespeare is number one. And just as you're talking about this idea of inhabiting a character and living in this character. That's what Shakespeare did. And I think that's one of the things that's so intriguing about him is you get this window into humanity. And in many respects, that's what you're doing as sales as well, is you're trying to get inside of the customer, understand what makes them tick, and in an authentic and appropriate way, figure out how to connect with them. I think you're spot on. And I think that's where liberal arts backgrounds really help salespeople. I mean, you don't have to have that, obviously, you know, to succeeding sales, but it, it's certainly an interesting advantage and, and a propellant. And then, you know, you asked like, where do, how did I get in sales from there? So that was my, my sort of, you know, entry. But my stepdad, the stockbroker, when I went back to him and said, you know, I've decided I'm not going to study law here. <laughs> I've got this, you know, this different path and I'm doing this job at night and I'm making good money. I think I want to go into sales. And he gave me the best advice I ever had. He just said, you know what? It's been a great career for me. My one piece of advice, go work for a company where you can get trained. Hmm. And um, and I stuck with that advice. He gave me a list of three companies at the time that he thought had great training programs. Back then, it was Xerox, IBM, and Harris Lanier. And I ended up uh, getting a job at, at Lanier and really learning the art of sales and the technique and, and the strategy of selling. And uh, that was a really great uh, piece of advice. 
that I wish all people could follow, but great training companies are fewer and farther between these days than they were back then. These companies have actually developed their own school of selling. IBM has come up a number of times on the show, Xerox as well, and they really groom the next generation of salespeople. And I've also heard modern sales leaders talk about how they aspire to become the next school of sales themselves. Uh, we, we talked to John McMahon, who's a great example of somebody that's spawned a school of sales, but there's so much to be said for leaders that can not only hit their number, but create an entire team of people that go on to be successful. Absolutely. And I think if we could have more companies like that, it would be a huge benefit to this profession because there are fewer that can take raw talent and turn it into high quality sales professionals. And they don't teach you that in school, right? Yeah. I mean, how many curriculum are there on how to be a sales executive, how to be a sales leader? Um, it's it's there's a few, but not that many, and I think it's uh, it's missing, unfortunately. In many respects, sales there's an apprentice model associated with it. You need to work with talented salespeople. They show you the ropes. There's only so much you can learn from books. Can you talk about a few of the leaders that you worked with in your career that really helped to shape your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's some interesting characters I've had to work with, like I'm sure most people have. All doing different things. There's three that I can think of that were particularly inspirational for me. My first manager, uh, Gail Hare uh, at Lanier. I didn't realize at the time that uh, Gail was actually a very unique uh, person because she was the only female manager in this uh, organization of 3,000 sellers. I didn't realize that uh, how big of a deal that was, how many uh, glass ceilings she had uh, broken. And she was actually then promoted to district manager yeah, which was even uh, more rare <laughs> because there was none of those. And um, one of the things that Gail uh, taught me early on, she was just a really consummate sales professional, is you do the right things and do them the right way and the results will take care of themselves. So she really focused on the fundamentals, uh, almost like a great martial arts teacher. I'm kind of a martial arts student. And you always return to the fundamentals because then everything becomes instinctual, Right. And um, I try to apply that still as I talk to my team and talk about how we consider um, a measurement of success. It's always do the right things, do them the right way, and the score will take care of itself. Uh, there's another character I worked for, a guy named Larry. He owned his own business, and I did a short-term duration assignment for him for about a year to uh, turn around his sales org and do some acquisitions and integrate them. And, and this company was a very low-margin uh, company. Larry was just a strange guy. Ebenezer Scrooge is the way I describe him. Yeah, he was so miserly that he would have his wife and child come through the facilities. He had these uh, shipping production facilities and collect all the cans from employees from the garbage, the waste, uh, the aluminum cans, so they could recycle them, so they could put that money back into the business. And, uh, you know, the guy was a multi-billionaire, really successful business, but he was so frugal about everything in that business because that's the uh, type of margin he was working from. And I, while I didn't love working for him, I learned a lot. You know, I really learned to respect uh, the value of money and, and the importance of understanding your cost model, your margin model, and where you're going to you know, eke out that benefit um, and how you can do that on the margin. So that was a classic one. And then one leader, my favorite leader. And you all have a favorite leader, right? <laughs> and for some, I hope I'm that. Uh, I aspire to that. I, my epitaph would be, I was somebody's favorite leader. Just one. Just right? one person. Just one person. Uh, I worked for Barry, uh, Barry Clark at uh, ATG when I first came over to ATG uh, to do um, uh, transformation, to turn him into a cloud company from on-prem. And uh, he was just the consummate servant leader. You know, his entire methodology was, look, you are an expert in cloud. You know how to transform this part of the business. I don't. My job is to get stuff out of your way, to remove blockers and let you just do your job. And it was such a phenomenal uh, sign of trust and partnership. And um, it appealed to the servant leader side of me so much that I thrived in that environment. 
but you don't often get that opportunity to work with that like-minded leader in your career. It doesn't happen very often. And that was just a true gift. And ironically, uh, Barry's son works for me now because I have so much respect for his dad. I'm like, no, no worries. I'll give your son a job and try to give him that same kind of leadership you gave me. Inevitably, you're going to come across that person and you just gel. There's something special about the relationship there. I took that for granted a little bit early in my career, but now I realize that when you find something like that, it's special and you got to you gotta cultivate it and, and, and feed it over the years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. All right. You are no stranger to startups. I know 2001 was a crazy ride for many of us, especially if you were operating in the, in the startup arena. Tell me a little bit about what you were doing back when the bubble burst. Oh, gosh. It still carry the scars from that time. Uh, I was on my uh, third startup that I had uh, started with uh, partners. And we were a couple of years into it. It was a company called Adapted. And it was a pretty clever idea. I don't know if anybody's used Box or Dropbox, but we actually had the same kind of capability back then. But we were doing it around project teams. And we were successful. We had about you know, 500,000 users on our platform. We had built a, a, a cloud solution. So back when nobody knew what cloud was, we called it ASP back then, so hosted applications. We had a freemium model. Uh, we were one of the first uh, ever to use something called AdWords. So we had this entire ad to click to MQL to uh, trial to freemium to upgrade path that was really quite phenomenal at the time. And things were going great. And we had uh, our venture capitalists in our office uh, back then in 2001, Hummer Winblad, which was a big VC at the time, uh, loved our model, was going to write us a big check. We'd scaled up the business. And literally the next week, the market just collapsed. And back then, if you weren't living uh, in the business world back then, if that was before your time, it was like you ran into a brick wall, like check stopped, venture capitalists stopped funding. There was all these silly business models back then, by the way, like all these models where they never imagined they would actually get revenue or customers or profit. They just got funded. So it probably needed to happen, like the bubble needed to happen. But there were companies like ours that actually had customers and revenue and a, a decent business plan. Uh, that also got caught up in that storm. And overnight, we had to make really hard decisions. And that decision was, well, we don't have the money to make payroll for all these people. We can close up shop like most people are doing, um, or we're going to have to do something radical and make massive cuts and look each other in the eye and say, can the company that's left over continue on and get to some form of profitability uh, until this market corrects and we have some other way of, of funding growth? And that's what we decided to do. We decided that we could do it. We could stick it out. We could make it work, but it was going to mean laying off more than half the organization. If you've ever had to do that, many of us get laid off in our, our paths. Some of us have to do the laying off. It's not fun. Like these are people's lives. You feel for them. You, you, know, you, you have to do what's right for the business, but you also try to take care of people on the way out. It's just devastating. It's really, really hard. And, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons from that experience about, you know, tenacity and grit and will on focusing on the bigger picture, the long term, which is there were still several hundred people who had jobs after that. They had families, too. They needed uh, a company that could survive. Our customers needed our technology, right? The vendors we relied on had bills we had to pay. So when you look at that sort of macro stuff, there's a lot of reasons to make things work. And um, it takes tenacity and will and grit, but also that, that kind of view on what's the bigger picture you're solving for. I remember those days, the 2000 going into 2001, it was crazy times. There was so much money floating around. The challenge though, was that the internet was new and no one really had figured out the business models. And yeah. so you were taking kind of a, an analog approach to the internet and doing things that would, would never make sense today but just doing it 100%. I remember going to trade shows and you felt like you were literally on Crazy Eddie's used car lot, the kind of stunts that people, I mean, circus performers, you know, car, carnival acts. And then to your point, 2001 hit and it all dried up. Two really funny statements I got from investors back then, having done three companies kind of during that period that made me realize something was wrong. The first was, they wanted to see our growth trajectory. And I showed them our growth chart. 
And they said, no, 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 I don't want to see your revenue growth. I want to see your employee count growth. <laughs> like, what's it got to do with anything? Like, you know, differentiation means how many employees you get because talent is at such a premium. Like, that's weird. And then the other thing I saw is, you know, tell me your customers. And I showed the customers like, no, no, not customers, eyeballs. How many people are seeing your website? How many people visit it? That's what we want to know. Eyeballs are everything. And that's when you know there's like craziness going on in the market. Yeah. The correction is on the horizon. So you made it through that. ATG, another highlight for you. That's actually where you and I met when Oracle acquired ATG. Yeah. I'd love to get your perspective being on the side of the acquired. What was that experience like? Oracle was known as an acquisition machine. And what advice would you have to sales leaders that are piloting their organization through that kind of an experience? Yeah, it was really a fascinating experience. Is that Oracle was an acquisition machine at the time. I think we were like 75th or 78th acquisition, some crazy number. And they had a playbook, right? Uh, a well-oiled uh, playbook and machine. Uh, for us, it was a little bit odd, though, because we were in that middle of that cloud transformation. So my business team was all cloud. Cloud was very uh, nascent there. They had one or two cloud products that they had built that weren't doing particularly well. And their entire acquisition playbook didn't work for cloud companies. Um, everything was disrupted. You know, they shut down our website right away, which was the lead source. They didn't know how to pay on recurring revenue and renewals. They didn't understand our, our quotas and ASPs. They didn't understand that we're a service and we have data centers and we have to provide that service. You can't just shut it down. Uh, we we're highly integrated to uh, competitive products and they shut all that down because they didn't want us talking to competitive products, which is just strange. So it was a very awkward sort of square peg round hole thing. But, you know, the thing that I tried to focus on with my team is, hey, look, Oracle's a huge company. There's a lot of opportunity there. And being inside of a big company, whether you ever wanted to or not, there's experience you can get. There's changes that can happen for your career. And getting some experience there is never a bad thing. So I focused on a couple of things that I think are good rules of thumb for any leader who's getting acquired. The first is you have a responsibility to your shareholders, right? So that's all about making sure that uh, you represent in due diligence, you know, the value of your company and your customers and that you uh, defend that value um, in the acquisition process. Uh, the second is that you have a responsibility to your customers, and that's to make sure that that acquiring company um, has a plan to make sure those customers are taken care of, that they can continue to operate. If something's going to be shut down, that there's ample notice so that they have time to, to find alternative vendors and that they understand the, the business of your customers so that uh, good decisions can be made. And the final thing is you have a responsibility to your employees. And to me, that is all about making sure that employees land successfully, that they continue to have an opportunity to work and provide for their families, and that they have an opportunity, hopefully, to decide if that new company is the right place for them uh, long term. And so part of the advice I gave my team is, look, we don't know what's on the other side of Oracle. I can guarantee you it's going to be different. It's going to change because they're a company that changes a lot. But I can also guarantee you that you won't know if it's right for you unless you give it a fair shake. So give it a year at least. Give it a year, settle in, see what it's like, see if that's the company for you. And then you can decide if it's not right and you need to go do something else. And that worked out pretty well for us. You know, there's still about 70% of my team that's still at Oracle. It worked for them. It was the place that they wanted and it's given them a career. Uh, some even left after five, 10 years and they got career benefit. They moved up. They had that large company experience and scale. And so I think that's the thing is those three things to focus on so that you can land your team, land your customers and do your, do your job for your shareholders. It's definitely a scary time if you're on the the side that's being acquired. And there certainly, I think, is coming in a tendency to be an us versus them until you feel like you're on the same side. You feel exposed as well because you don't know any of the players. You don't know what decisions are being made. As a leader, did you ever have to go to bat for your team when you first came on board? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe too many times. Um, because we were a cloud company and there were so many decisions being made that countered our model. Uh, but there's one, you know, one example that I thought was uh, really important. Um, and I could give you many. Uh, but one example was, uh, they literally had a plan after a month to shut our website down. And our website was a source of all leads, there was no plan to supplement it. 
So there wasn't going to be a microsite. There wasn't going to be a lead gen microsite. And I knew that the leads were the lifeblood of our team until we got into integrated with a broader sales team where we could leverage the, the Oracle field uh, for demand generation. So um, I went and spoke with uh, the uh, SVP of global sales operations, took that walk around the little Oracle campus around the lake out there and helped her understand the model of our business and why shutting down our website made absolutely no sense. It would just uh, mess up our customers, mess up the organization and the value that they bought us for. And, and I did succeed. So I got a reprieve, if you will. Uh, and, and we were able to build a plan to transition demand gen into microsites at Oracle and then ultimately leverage the field. But there's a lot of stuff like that. When you're being acquired, you're going to have to speak up and, and try to make sure you're standing up for, again, your customers and, uh, and your team. Little sidebar here, for those that aren't familiar with the Oracle campus, it does in fact have a lake in the middle. Oracle acquired the property that used to belong to Marine World Africa USA, an amusement park, and that's where all the dolphins would swim. So to this day, you can go drive on Twin Dolphin Boulevard, and that's now the lake. Funny to see how things change hands. You are currently the chief revenue officer at Splunk. You guys are doing some remarkable things there. I always like to ask people, what is your playbook when you come into a new organization and you have to set that organization up? For you, how would you break that down? Yeah, I, I wish it was more original, um, but it's tried and true. I keep using the same one because it works for me. There's four pillars that I focus everything around. And by focus, what I mean is, it's what I inspect first. It's what I dig into to figure out how things are working. And then it's the goals I set uh, around you know, what I'm going to impact in the business. So uh, the four of them are operational excellence, uh, employee engagement, uh, customer engagement, and partner engagement. Those are the four pillars um, that I use every time. All right. So let's dig into operational excellence. What is it and how do you achieve it? It is really that ability for the engine to scale and produce consistently and to produce according to the, the goals of the business. That's sort of the macro level. And underneath that is all the engines that create that scale, uh, which include uh, how do we attract and retain our people? How do we enable them? What are the uh, measures that we use? What are the cadences we use? What are the systems we use? And how well are we adhering to those and how are we adjusting them? So a lot of us think about fundamental things like forecasting. That's an element of operational excellence, but it's just one element of it. And the way you dig into that is you look at the cadences of the business and you look at the systems and the processes and you look at how consistent are we at saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to measure it. And then we actually do it. And that's kind of the, the layman's way of doing it, I guess. It's never achieved, by the way. So one of the things I tell my team is we are going to drive operational excellence, which means always figuring out what we can do and must do better to scale and get uh, improved and repeatable performance, but we'll never achieve perfection. So we just have to keep striving for it. Time is like a great uh, sports team. Which people are involved in that pursuit? Well, actually, uh, everybody is because uh, it's a mindset for the field. It's not the job of the sales operations team, for example, to drive operational excellence. It's the job of every member of the team. And what we do is we, we drive that message. Here's your role in operational excellence. As an individual contributor, it's about driving the appropriate forecast cadence, following the sales process, leveraging the best practices, adhering to um, our, our policies, driving the right POCs, engaging customers the right way. So that's your part of operational excellence. It goes further into expense policy and all that kind of stuff. But then as you move up into management, it's about how are they applying the cadences uh, to their organization? How are they looking at their balanced performance, for example? How are they looking at uh, the metrics of their business and understanding how well they're achieving against uh, the plan objectives? And are they investing in their business uh, as a franchise, really? And then as you apply that to all the other areas, they have their own piece of it. So we think of everybody, not just the field, but you know, our, our BVCs, our specialists, our SDs, they all have an operational excellence set of 
uh, goals and uh, criteria that they're striving for. And it helps them all be better uh, business people and better business leaders, frankly. Now, as a sales leader, you probably have one of the closest relationships to finance that I've seen. Tell me a little bit about why you value that relationship and that dynamic so much. Yeah, I love my finance partners. I literally see them as another arm, another leg of the stool, because running a, a larger organization requires you to be very systematic about how you scale um, and how you measure what you're doing and how you make trade-off decisions around your investments. And the finance guys just bring a different perspective to it. You know, Whenever we're in sales, whether we're sales ops or sales leaders, uh, we're going to bring biases like we talked about earlier, right? Our experience bias, our recency bias, et cetera. And the finance folks are going to bring their own bias, which is more about numbers and uh, number crunching and models and patterns. And every time I engage them in a conversation, they bring something different, sometimes something silly, like some of their stuff makes no sense because it's a finance thing. But often they bring insights into um, how you can look at your operations uh, through a lens of uh, return and cost and even metrics that will open your eyes. And so for me, by embedding them into the business and seeing how I think and the metrics I look at and what I'm driving, they can translate that into, oh, okay, here's some different ways that we can look at that and look at investments and look at trade-offs, understanding the business and bring that knowledge back to me. Uh, so that helps me do a lot of really smart things around uh, budget reallocations, investing in pet projects, doing trials of, of new motions, et cetera, by having a partner who can help me not just fund those things, but help build the, um, the insights into measurement. And then in partnership, we can decide if that's something to go forward with. So my worldview is FP&A is your best friend. As you think about all the metrics that you're exposed to, what are those one or two metrics that you always go to first in assessing the health of the business? Definitely pipeline, pipeline, pipeline. It's <laughs> just funny. Is, like you could spend all the money in the world on sales consultants and they're going to come in and analyze your business for months with a busload of consultants. And at the end of the day, they're going to say, well, Justin, you got a pipeline problem. <laughs> you know, that's what it always is. So, uh, and I, I kid you not, I know that's old school and we all know it. But pipeline is a much more complicated thing to watch and analyze than anybody imagines because it, uh, it is full of dynamics. And you look at COVID, for example, everybody's pipeline shifted, whether they know it or not. Just how did it shift? So you probably found industry shift, right? Some industries got clobbered, others accelerated. You probably found geographic shift. You probably found velocity shift or um, you know, the, uh, the bands of deals that you do uh, shifting dramatically. And so the number one thing that I always drive is pipeline, pipeline, pipeline. Understand what's happening with pipeline. Uh, understand the, the, uh, the historical trends. Understand not just your achievement on your coverage ratio and your, your multipliers. Make sure that you understand the, the levers and drivers of pipe. So pipe is everything. A pipe is the one thing you should always go to. But there's a bunch of others that are really important. You know, productivity is the next one I always watch, which is you know, productivity of my sellers, both new and ramping. And, how we drive that productivity, because that's the biggest lever you have on your year on your growth is how do you drive either your capacity or your productivity? And it's always a kind of a balance between those things. You know, as you're a growing company, you know, capacity is your path to growth. Um, as you get to larger scale, you have to really focus on productivity. And so, you know, those are kind of like the three magical levers, I think, that uh, I watch constantly. Perfect. All right. Number two, employee engagement. What is that? How do you achieve it? I think the simplest way to, uh, to describe it the way I think about it is, are your employees, are they having a good time? Are they enjoying their work? Are they stitched on? Are they tuned on? Are they tuned out? <laughs> right. So take any of those descriptions, that measure of, are they showing up and doing a good job? How you measure that is really, I think, a set of different things. So from the metrics point of view, you should be looking at attainment, right? So if your attainment numbers um, are tough, uh, you should suspect you've got some engagement challenges. But attainment isn't everything because you can have all sorts of different attainment patterns and still have engagement patterns that are off. So the next thing I always do and recommend this is run regular engagement surveys. I know it sounds a little bit strange. Uh, there's actually companies who've made their living off this, but I employ those regularly. Um, we do them 
minimum annually, but we've been taken to do it at every quarter, particularly um, with COVID. So we could really understand how employees are feeling. Those engagement surveys help us uncover uh, with confidential questions, um, how they're feeling about communication. Are they getting a direction from the top? Uh, do they understand their role and what's changed? Um, how are they feeling uh, in terms of their personal life, you know, their personal uh, stress management? Do they feel like this is a company they would still recommend? And how long do they imagine staying at this company? And those surveys tell you a lot about, are you sort of keeping uh, the team uh, aligned and, um, and on deck with sort of your mission, or are you starting to go off kilter? And I also compare those engagement scores against my peer group. So against you know, engineering, for example, and legal and HR to understand, are we doing a better job, if you will, or the same kind of job? And I'm proud to say our, our engagement scores are always higher, which is good because we're driving an agenda there. And by the way, our attainment isn't always the biggest driver of that. It is everything else, communication, you know, uh, how they experience uh, their job, their belief in the company, uh, their belief in being treated fairly and, and, and their opportunity to succeed. And the last bit is just your skip level. So when you're out there with your team, you just gotta ask them those honest questions. So, you know, how do you feel about Splunk? What would you say to your friends about Splunk? What's the last person you recommended to come to Splunk? You know, how, how do you, long do you see yourself here? Like, do you see yourself here for a long time? Do you see yourself moving up? And, you know, some people will kind of shadow that, but you can figure that out. You'll see the truth, right? And you'll see if people are engaging with the company and the brand. And I think the best thing in the world is when people say, yeah, here's the two or three people that I just referred into the company. So that tells you a lot about how they, they feel about it. The employee survey is powerful. If nothing else, it keeps the topic top of mind. I can also say, having worked at companies that were religious about it, as a leader, it can be really frustrating because you want to achieve, you want to be successful. These scores, though, do not see massive moves one direction or another from one survey. And so I think it's important to set the expectation. This is a long game. We're going to make incremental improvement over time. And the second thing I've observed is it's not management's job to improve the, the company culture, the morale. It's everybody's job. Management absolutely has a key role, but too many times I think companies fall in the trap of saying management will take care of this and the employees kind of start to generate this mindset that, hey, what are you doing for me today? You know, what's funny about that, Justin, one of the lessons I've learned in my career is employee engagement, uh, the level of engagement uh, is not the goal. The goal is understanding the level of engagement because that's what you have to work with because you can have a very disengaged employee base and still drive a successful business, right? So it's really understanding it to your point because you may or may not need to move the needle. You just need to understand what you're dealing with. So should you expect higher attrition, for example? Should you expect revolt in the ranks? Are you going to have more problems selling your comp plan? And to me, that's that's part of the key thing is understanding where their mind is at and and what things you might want to shift and how you might want to shift them in order to get to the outcome that you're after. Let's close off on partner engagement. You've worked for some companies that have built great channels. And I'd love to get your insights on, first of all, when you work, when you rely on partners, who is the customer? Is it the partner or is it the, the ultimate customer that they're selling to? It's such a great question. And I, I certainly have a bias here. And my bias is the customer is the partner. And I think the, uh, the big mistake that uh, companies make sometimes is when they don't understand, you know, they have both. So there's the end user of the product, that's an important customer for sure. And you gotta make sure your products work and your partner isn't able to make that customer successful. But if you don't also understand that the partner is a customer, uh, you're gonna miss the boat. You're gonna miss the boat on uh, embedding them into your organization as a trusted part of the organization. You'll miss the boat on enablement. You'll miss the boat on operationalizing them. So partner development and building the right partner programs that help the partner be successful um, with whatever their business model is. So yeah, I, I, I've really learned that lesson kind of the hard way maybe is that uh, you have to see your ecosystem um, based on what your business needs, right? I mean, how are you using the channel? How are you using partners? And understand that they are a critical customer and you have to, um, build uh, around that need and succeed with them just as you do the end user of your products or services. And there are certainly different types of partners, but you're right. Ultimately, you need to take care of the partners. You're dealing with a VAR, for example. They have options. 
And the degree to which you train them, enable them, equip them to be successful is the level of service that you're going to get back. And as soon as that starts to fall, it's easy for them to start to shift into, into other areas and, and categories. So many times I see an antagonistic relationship between the vendor and the partners that they work with, this wrestle for who owns that end customer relationship. And to your point, I, I think that kind of misses the, the bigger picture. Yeah, I think you're right about that. At the end of the day, partnerships are about mutual reward, right? And a mutual yeah. benefit. And they will shift uh, through time. And I think the one thing I've learned that partners uh, appreciate the most is clarity and transparency. Because even if you're going to say no, they need to know you're going to say no. Uh, what they really don't work with is ambiguity and and, uh, and uh, uh, irrationality. So, and that's hard to, hard to do, right? It's hard to get your field to be you know transparent and and clear and consistent with partners. But if you can, uh, you get better um, better relationships and outcomes out of it. Well, Christian, the time has flown by. I guess, or or should I say, Bobby Jones? We're getting all sorts of <laughs> Bobby Jones. <laughs> getting all sorts of perspective here. Let me wrap up with one final question. As you look back over the arc of your career and, and more generally your life, when all is said and done, what's that one thing that really made the difference? Oh, I think for sure, the biggest difference is growth mindset. And to me, that summarizes everything that's helped me in my life and my career, that, that uh, humility to always be learning and to learn from everyone in every situation, to know that there's always somebody better at everything in this world than you. <laughs> and so uh, be humble and, and try to learn and, and from uh, everybody and bring great people uh, to every problem and build great teams. I think uh, it's never stop learning. And if you can do only one thing in your career, it would be apply that growth mindset and amazing things will happen. Well, Christian, thanks so much for sharing your experiences, your insights. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Justin. Great to spend time with you again. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.